Hello, and welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Sharon Shu, And I'm Karis Ellison. Today we're going to talk about another short story by Dorothy L. Sayers, but we're going to take a little break from Lord Peter and meet a new character. Uh, and Sharon, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about our, our new friend that we're discussing today? Yes, we will be discussing a short story about Montague Egg or Monty Egg, another one of those bona fide Sayers character <laughs> names that I just love. <laughs> Uh, right up there with Waffles Newton, you know? So, <laughs> Love Waffles. Right? So Monty is a traveling salesman. He represents Messieurs Plummet and Rose. I'm assuming there's no weird way to pronounce that, but <laughs> if, <laughs> if I've somehow butchered those two names, please feel free to correct me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, they will. They will, yeah. So yeah, so Monty is a traveling salesman. He sells wine and fine spirits. And yeah, I'm not quite sure what else to really say about him because I think very different from the Lord Peter books, we don't get much of a sense of Monty's personal life. Like, does he have one? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like his life is very much his job. Exactly. Yeah. And he has sort of all these little funny aphorisms that he, you know, takes from sort of like the traveling salesman's uh, handbook. Handbook. Yeah. Which I question whether it's an actual handbook or whether this is just like a little thing that he's written for himself. Right? Like Peter's rules for the cattery agents, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, unclear. Unclear from the text. <laughs> Yeah, but so he he sort of jaunts around and there are a bunch of short stories where, you know, he isn't really so much brought in as a sleuth as more often he will like witness a crime or Mm -hmm. the aftermath of a crime. And then there will be something kind of in his background that, you know, where he'll ping on to a detail and sort of provide the key to to a mystery. So Monty first appears in the short story collection Hangman's Holiday, which came out in 1933. And then there's sort of another set of stories about him in the short story collection In the Teeth of the Evidence, which published 1939. So we sort of have the established Lord Peter novels and stories at this point. And I think it's interesting that we kind of see Sayers turning to a a very different kind of detective figure and very different kind of protagonist, removing all of that that personal emotional nonsense, like we already (laughs) mentioned. Yeah, and so the story we'll be talking about today is from that In the Teeth of the Evidence collection, and it is called The Professor's Manuscript. Yeah. So we've talked in the past about how we enjoy it when Sayers kind of plunges you into a scene, right? Where characters just start talking. Mm -hmm. And I find that, especially in short stories, I find that a really engaging way for a story to start when you're just plunged into some lively dialogue. And there's so much writing advice and stuff on writing forums about like, what should a good first sentence be? Mm Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to do so many things, you know, it's supposed to establish setting and character. And I feel like the way Sayers sometimes does that with jumping in with the dialogue, and it's almost never the main character's dialogue, you know, but it's someone talking to the main character. And it does a lot of that heavy lifting just right off the bat. You know, it has someone telling you who the main character is because they say their name or address them in some way. And, 
you're kind of introduced to a tone and a place and that stuff kind of happens through the dialogue. Yeah. Which happens here in this story because we have Mr. Hopgood, a traveling representative for Monsieur's Brotherhood Limited, who says, see here, Monty, to Mr. Egg, traveling representative for Monsieur's Plummet and Rose. It gives you a sense of that there, you know, like there's a casual atmosphere and there's a that wasn't going anywhere profound. I'm talking myself in a circle. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, you see that these two men are, you know, they're on like nickname basis, right? Mm -hmm. You immediately learn that they're both traveling representatives. So the the job aspect comes on the forefront. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very, it's it's a bit how the sausage gets made, right? Because he says, while you're here, why don't you have a go at old Professor Pinder? I should say he was just about in your line. So it's like, Right away in those two, no, one sentence separated by semicolon, you have, you know, the main character, Montague Egg, you know what he does. Mm-hmm. And you've set up basically the whole premise for the plot of this short story, but right? he's going to go visit a professor mm-hmm. and try to sell him some wine. And, you know, we find out very shortly thereafter that Mr. Hopgood had given it a go himself, but was <laughs> in in his uh, telling treated quite rudely, you know, brought in and... And then lectured about how soft drinks are uh, gut rot and so forth. (laughs) Which, you know, Mr. Hopgood represents Brotherhood Limited. Our listeners will want to remember that name for when we finally get to talk about Murder Must Advertise. Yes, yes. The whole unified theory of (laughs) Dorothy (laughs) Sayers. Someone, not us, can map that all out one day. Yeah. But speaking of the unified theory of Sayers, I feel like the second paragraph also, I, I feel like we get sort of like little Easter eggy nods to other mysteries that we've had, or not even, they're not so much Easter eggs as like, I guess, recycling of certain tropes or certain images that would be familiar, right? So mm-hmm. so Monty is a bit reluctant to, to have this conversation with Mr. Hopgood because he's reading his newspaper and we get a set of newspaper headlines, you know, screen stars, marriage, romance, plane dash. Continent comb out for missing financier. Country house mystery blaze arson suspicions. Budget income tax remission possibility. And none of these map one-to-one to to the Peter books, but I feel like Mm -hmm. they're little echoes, right? Like the plane dash makes me think about Clouds of Witness when he's flying back with that crucial piece of information. The the missing financier obviously echoes whose body um, and Sir Reuben Levy going missing. Country house mystery, again... Clouds of Witness, like obviously no arson there, but that that sort of classic country house mystery. So I don't know. I I think it goes back to what you were saying about how Sayers is so efficient with being very specific in her scene setting, but always, you always get the sense that there's a whole world beyond the scene that you're looking at, right? Like her her world is just very populated Mm -hmm. and she does it so efficiently and I as as someone who gets like a little bit impatient with some of the endless world building that you can get in in really big <laughs> really big fantasy novels for example you know like we don't naming need to no know, names yeah we don't need to know everything about how this magic system works just tell me there's magic I just I really like this aspect of Sayers yeah I was just kind of like flipping through the first couple of pages of the story here and like there's nothing that describes where this conversation is taking place Mm -hmm. And like one of my many faults as a writer is that I don't know what something looks like until I describe it to someone else. Mm -hmm. So like my manuscripts are always full of long paragraphs where I describe things because I needed to know. And 
it's not necessarily information that anyone else needs. And the editing process is very annoying because I have to take all of that out. And we don't have that here. Like there's no lengthy paragraph explaining to us that we're in like, oh, the breakfast room of a inn and, you know, or a coffee house. Like there's no there's no setup. Like it's just a place where traveling salesmen have breakfast. But that still we don't need more than that because that like I don't know about you, but I don't have any problem picturing where this scene is happening. Yeah. Even though there's literally no description of the place. <laughs> there's not even impressionistic details, right? I feel like sometimes Sayers will drop a like, there was like a clatter of coffee cups or, you know, you, you get a sense. Yeah. Uh, Peter and Freddie are both not or, or sort of cozied up in, in a club or, or at a restaurant or something. And, and there's none of that other than, you know, I guess there's somewhere where Montague Egg can read his newspaper without it being very rude. Yeah. But you're right. Like you just, you don't need it. Once again, this is one of those mysteries where we're, pretty much gonna spoil it like there's there's no yeah. there's no long drawn out spoiler alert here um but even in this first scene Sayers puts in a lot of clues before you even really know what the mystery mm-hmm. is gonna be well it's yeah it's right there in one of those headlines isn't it the content come out for the missing financier mm-hmm. yeah but like you don't know what the mystery is gonna be yet in fact I would say through most of the story it's it's one of those things where it's very unclear I think what Monty is noticing and what mm-hmm. he like what he's inquiring about it's definitely not one of those a body was found you know Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like this this isn't a murder mystery. It's not a who done it. And it's not you know like it also doesn't break the rules right Sayers meticulously follows the rules of showing us all of the clues mm-hmm. but it's one of those things where you don't know what you're looking at until you see what you're looking at yeah <laughs> until you see the full picture it's very Megan Whalen Turner that way yes which <laughs> let's have a conversation after we finish recording uh, this episode about Megan Whalen Turner yes although we can't talk about Return of the Thief because I haven't read it yet because I like I have it. It's mm-hmm. sitting there, but I haven't started it yet. You know, a long anticipated thing and then you just because mm-hmm. once you're done with it, it's over. Yeah, I well, <laughs> I had the opposite experience of, you know, I got sent the galley pages a few months ago. Yes. Mm-hmm. And like the fandom is such where I was like, I cannot talk <laughs> Like, I can't even react to this, but, you know, like, even that feels like a spoiler of if I'm yes. like, I'm thrilled or I'm sad or like, whatever. Like, I, I yeah, was just like, like, well, there can be absolutely nothing. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm gonna like twiddle my thumbs for three months and just like, <laughs> quietly have feelings in my own home. Yeah, that's yeah. the punishment that it you get punishment. for 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 having early access it's true. having early access yeah it's true yeah so yeah so we we can talk about how much we love megan Whaley and turner but we can't get into any details yet because yeah i have to like commune with the book yeah. from a distance before i can actually <laughs> read it before you approach the altar <laughs> yeah this is normal everyone this is a normal reading experience and for, for context, for those of our listeners who we've just completely lost, um, I have no idea, maybe we'll cut all this, but... <laughs> this is a Megan Whalen turner podcast now. Yes. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Plot twist. <laughs> we are talking about The Queen's Thief, which is a deeply beloved series by both of us and uh, hundreds of thousands of fans around the world, which is a 
I guess, yeah, now a six-book series by Megan Whalen Turner, begun like 25 years ago. So long ago. Long time. A, A lifetime ago. And it has political intrigue and so many plot twists and everything is meticulously fair in that Sayersy mm-hmm. way of like she she drops all these hints, yeah. but then you don't know their hints until after you finish the book and your mind has exploded. When you get to the end of the book and you go back to the beginning of the book, the second time you read the book, it's a different book. It's so good. Yes, it's so good. And if you are not familiar with the series, we highly recommend it. This is a great time to get hooked because <laughs> the last book finally came out. Um, so you're not going to have to do that thing where you're waiting years and years and years. Like six years? Was it six years between <laughs> The King of Atolia and Conspiracy of Kings? Yes. Yeah, I think the longest gap was six years and the shortest was like two or three between books. But I always tell people, yeah, the only thing, like try to go in as unspoiled as possible. And the only thing you really need to know is that the premise of the first book is a thief who brags that he can steal anything is tasked with stealing an object that doesn't exist or that mm. only exists in myth, basically. Yeah. So that's it. That's it. Go go forth and read. Yeah, that's all you need to know. Just just trust us. Just trust us. Um, but yes. Uh, so Sayers also, <laughs> well, yes. I was, I was actually reflecting as you were, you were talking about how going back and immediately rereading to pick up clues, that is like a short story is much more efficient for that kind of thing. Yes. Right? You could do it pretty quickly versus flipping back to the beginning of a very long series. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I guess getting back to Montague Egg, I think so. We've talked a lot about Peter and about how one of the things we love about Peter is like how much depth he has as a character, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have Monty, who is not at all that. You know, he almost feels like a caricature. Yeah. But not in in an annoying way. Monty feels like the main character in in a not too deep but very fun to watch murder mystery show. Yes. Which, you know, like some, like a formula, a formulaic whodunit show where it's not totally believable that, that these murders keep happening, you know, like murders, like, you know, like a murder she wrote or a. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't characterize Monty himself as a jolly person like that that feels a little bit too um yeah but but i mean like he's just like a cheerful normal person who's just who keeps having these odd things happen around him (laughs) yeah like the the stories the stories feel they just have like a jollier tone i think yes and i think what i'd call the tone is that it just feels very much like sayers is just like winking real broadly the whole time oh yes and it's not like we're not digging into Monty's soul at any point in these stories. No, these are very much, I think, more those like puzzle box mysteries. Yeah. Like they feel, yeah, they feel a little bit like an escape room in a box or like a like a murder yeah. dinner party, you know, uh, kit or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. And very much a palate cleanser. Mm-hmm. you know and I like I want I kind of wonder there's a part of me that wonders if that's what writing them was for Sayers 
Yes, like something she could kind of quickly dash off between. Yeah, and just like they're they're fun, they're light, you know, like they have a lot of wit, but not metaphysical wit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because like when we've talked a little bit about how repeatedly in the Lord Peter books, Sayers is asking her audience to meet her at like a certain education level in order to get some of the clues or in order to get some of the references, you know, Mm -hmm. like she's that she's expecting certain things of her audience. And these stories don't necessarily do that. And they, I feel like it's not that there's, it's not less craftsmanship going into the stories because they are still they're They're tightly plotted and the writing is still up to snuff, but it's like they cater to a different audience Maybe this is something that we'll have stronger opinions about once we get into, you know, some of the later books. Like, I know that, like, both of us are just like, we're going to get to Gaudy Night and then we're going to have, like, so much to say about classism. And, like, I know that I specifically haven't fully developed my ideas about that yet. But where does this fit in in terms of, like, who Sayers was writing for? Well, like what audience did she have in mind when she was writing and what does that say about the differences between the tone of the stories mm-hmm. so much to unpack with what you just said <laughs> let me just let me just bring in all this luggage no 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 it's great it's I feel a little bit like uh you know back when I used to teach undergrads and sometimes my students would say something and I'd be like oh there's like 50 million directions we could go with this, this is so exciting <laughs> Not that I'm the teacher and you're the student here, but, you know, it's like my my brain started pinging in a lot of directions as you were talking. I think, yes, there's like a certain expectation of Sayers in the, the Peter novels that maybe there are some cultural or intellectual references that she holds in common with at least her ideal reader, right? Like maybe not mm-hmm. her mass audience, but kind of leaving some clues that somebody who who had sort of like the education that she had or was concerned about the same concerns that she had would, would pick up on. I think there's also a kind of like moral demand that she was making of readers in the Peter novels, especially as they, I was going to say as they keep developing, but I, I mean, even really early on, we've we've talked so much about you know, how she uses the novels to explore questions of justice and like who gets justice and who gets to be in the place of justice. And is it even, is detecting even sort of like a moral thing, you know, when someone like Peter who gets to do it for fun does it and it like potentially ruins other people's lives. Like I I don't think Sayers, I think there are some places where her classism and sort of her her biases really show through, but I, I don't think it maps one-to-one. Like, I imagine that to her, like, the lay reader, the everyday reader was also fully capable of grappling with moral issues, right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. think she was like, ooh, the really, the, only the highly intelligent reader should, is, is going to be, like, interested in the ethical dilemmas I'm putting forward because she is putting them forward in these, like, very popular books with, like, mass appeal to a kind of mass culture audience. But... I think with the Monty story, she's really interested in kind of playing out that question of like, what kinds of knowledge, what kinds of access, what kinds of information are given to you or like are sort of attached to different classes, you know? So like we've talked before about how 
there are times when Peter has to send Bunter in to like canoodle up to a lady's maid basically because it would just be vastly inappropriate for Peter to interview that servant or like the the you know the idea that they just wouldn't tell him what he needs to know because mm-hmm. the class differential is too large right that there is a kind of class solidarity between servants where they wouldn't necessarily you know expose their real thoughts to to someone who is a lord and I think the Monty stories in particular like because Monty occupies the point of view of like laboring class I think there's a really interesting question to be asked from an epistemological point of view, like what knowledge is available and not available to Monty, right? Like, Mm -hmm. well, as we'll see, if if we ever start talking about this story, (laughs) we'll see that like, it's a mystery in which if Peter walked into Professor Pinder's study, there would be no mystery. Mm -hmm. Like the conversation that he would engage in with the professor on like Greek and Latin, he would immediately know that, spoiler alert, this professor is a fraud. Whereas Monty has to piece together a bunch of other clues, but it's it's not presented as like, oh, poor Monty, if only he yeah. could read classical Greek. It's more like, oh, he has invested in studying human nature mm-hmm. in a very different way than like Peter has and has to because of the difference in their social standing. Monty picks up on clues that are more about Oh, in my knowledge of, you know, quote unquote, fine gentlemen, they do things X, Y, Z way such that he's able to unpack where the professor is being fraudulent. And I do think like I keep coming back. I know I say this almost every episode, but I'm like, I'm going to have so much to say about this when we get to Gotti Night. (laughs) Because I, I do think Sayers betrays a lot of anxiety in Gaudy Night regarding social boundary crossing and class boundary crossing. And that gets mm-hmm. all wrapped up in education and women's education. So yes, now I have talked myself into a circle, but those are all the things that I'm interested <laughs> in all the time about Sayers and also in this story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like this story is just an interesting cross section of that, right? Because it's a cross section of those two worlds, the educated world where Peter would know immediately this could never be a Lord Peter mystery story because it wouldn't be a mystery. Mm-hmm. But then you have Monty inhabiting this completely different world. I think what really strikes me about Monty, you know, kind of as a detective figure is how his ability to solve things relies just on him being observant, being someone who's interested in human nature. And he talks a lot about how he very deliberately like makes a study of human nature because that's part of his work but also he has a bright inquiring mind and he Mm -hmm. pays attention to details and it's what makes him a good salesman but it also those are the qualities that Sayers is kind of saying like this is what makes a good detective is someone who niggles at fine details and it's just like oh this thing doesn't fit I'm just gonna keep pulling on this string and Oh, and here's another string until all those things kind of click together. Which is something he definitely shares with Peter, right? And Yeah, that like that inability to let things go. Yeah. It's like picking at a scab, you know? It's just like, <laughs> this, this thing's not quite right, you know? But it's like that kind of thing where it's like, like that brain itch mm-hmm. where you can't let go of it until you have tracked it all the way down to its source. That Like, I just feel like that is, for Sayers... The quality that makes a detective is that interest in pursuing a question all the way to its conclusion. 
as opposed to just having a thought and then letting it drift away. Peter even says that in um, in in whose body, you know, there's that scene where he has to go to a lunch party and his mother is there and he's kind of chatting with the other guests about how an ordinary person, they have facts and they just roll around like peas on a tray. But a detective starts stringing the, the peas together. Yeah. And Monty does that here, too. Mm hmm. So after he's seen Professor Pinder, which put a pin in that, we'll come back to it. <laughs> we'll actually describe what's happening in this story, listeners. But it says, well, thought Montague Egg, that's a puzzler, that is. All the same, it's no business of mine, and I don't want to make a mistake. I wonder who I could ask. Wait a minute, Mr. Griffiths, he's the man, he'll know in a moment. So it's like, Monty's almost even playing out that that inner dialogue, right? That we know Peter has done in the past too of, well, my curiosity is pulling at these threads. I've noticed something is wrong with the picture, but is it really my place? Mm, but I'm going to do it anyway, you know? Yeah, I can't help it. Yeah, and I think... I'm, I'm not interested in the question of, like, was Dorothy Sayers a snob or, or not? Like, that's, again, <laughs> anything that hinges on, like, biography. I'm like, I don't care. But I think it is meaningful that what her body of work does not say is that intelligence and curiosity and the right to ask questions only belongs to the well-educated or the wealthy or the, the Lord Peters of the world. I think it's very clear that, like you said, she's saying these are these are the set of qualities that make a good detective and they can appear in in anyone of any class, really. So it's not that noblesse oblige thing of just wait for the aristocracy to come in and like <laughs> solve your problems. <laughs> or even, I guess, the less caricature way of putting that would be the subconscious belief that some people hold that, oh, those who are wealthy or titled must therefore, you know, that there, there's like a moral goodness that comes along with that. Like, I think, yeah. And, you know, maybe Americans are more susceptible to that because of the whole Protestant work ethic thing. I don't know. But like, I, I think there's often, I mean, you know, in our country, there's there's a lot of moralizing about wealth and, yeah. and about poverty, right? That impoverished people somehow deserve it. And don't work hard and blah, 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 all that garbage. Mm -hmm. And if people are wealthy, it's because they deserve to be blessed, that they have somehow earned wealth as a blessing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is not biblical at all, because I'm pretty sure it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than something, something, something. Yeah. But the yeah. hermeneutical hijinks you and I have both heard on that one, like, it. <laughs> You know, it's just <laughs> astonishing how, how many interpreters of that verse tie themselves in crazy, crazy <laughs> knots, like to not read mm -hmm. it literally. And they read lots of other things very, very literally. It's like, hmm, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> this is a theology podcast now. It's what Sayers would want. <laughs> oh, our poor listeners. <laughs> the emotional whiplash we must be giving them. They, I, I feel like probably they're there with us yeah i imagine like, so who knows how to focus these days anymore i don't i sure don't mm -mm. you know like my brain is pinging off in different directions because it's making me think of i follow a lot of blogs and like instagram accounts of people who are not just body positive but are fat positive meaning you know like they're actively combating you know the stigma against fat bodies and fat phobia and a you know, quote that I saw recently that I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember exactly what it went. It's just something about like being thin isn't 
a, a moral position. If like if you happen to be skinny, it doesn't give you the moral high ground automatically because I because I feel like that's essentially what you're saying about wealth, right? Like there's no fundamental moral high ground that comes with being wealthy. And you're right. There's like this built in feeling that surely there must be that, oh, if people are wealthy, then there, there must be something special about them. And it's really not. They're just people who either, you know, like who got lucky or whose ancestors got lucky or maybe it wasn't luck. Maybe it was unscrupulous. <laughs> maybe it was exploitation. Yeah. So often it was. Generational wealth is a huge driver of, of inequity in much of the Western world. And a lot of the ways that families acquire generational wealth was certainly not what gets prescribed to say mm-hmm. immigrants of like or yeah. people of color right just work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps like ooh actually y'all crushed a lot of people under your boots to mm-hmm. to to get that wealth so surprise this is now an anti-capitalist podcast yes it was always that uh, spoiler alert it was always that <laughs> oh are we talking about a short story are we talking about a jolly short story oh <laughs> Yes. Uh, let me just like very, very, very quickly run through the, the plot of the story. Yes. To provide some context for <laughs> our listeners. <laughs> so Montague Egg takes up Mr. Hopgood's excellent advice and goes to the town where the this professor has just bought an old family home, the Wellingtonia house. He asks the landlord, I think of like the inn that he's staying at, or no, not the inn that he's staying at, but like the inn that he's selling. Yeah, he visits an inn to to deal with a complaint. Yes. Turns out that they were like storing their bottles of tawny next to next to the heating pipes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so you know, he's like, should I go call on this person? You know, tell me anything you can about him sort of doing the, the background intel and the landlord's like, oh, well, you know, I guess he, he must be wealthy because he, he bought the place outright, but, you know, seems to be a bit cheap, like... Doesn't doesn't go out and do anything. Exactly. Doesn't really seem to want to bring trade into the town, you know, but but he does he does get like a nice steak chop sent up every week or so. You know, he lives there alone with his housekeeper, etc., etc. So Monty takes himself off to the house, is greeted by a middle-aged woman in an apron, Quote, at sight of whom Mr. Egg instantly dismissed the manner he used for domestic servants and substituted the one he reserved for persons, quote, out of the top drawer, as he phrased it. A pre-war gentlewoman in a post-war job, he decided. So, again, his study of human nature and of social classes where he's like, oh, this is, you know, like maybe a gentlewoman fallen on hard times. So he's, he sort of pulls out his, his best manners for her. He gets shown into... The professor's library and does a bit of like, you know, as like we all do, right? When you go to someone's (laughs) house for the first time and they have books on the shelf and you kind of like crane your head to to see what books they have. I don't crane my head. I go straight to, I'm I'm a snooper. (laughs) Both of us just like, you know, telling on ourselves now. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask me to your house if you don't want me to go through your bookshelf. Why else? How how else do you know that you want to be friends with someone? Come on. Right. So it's a very attractive library. We get a couple long paragraphs of the different books that Monty sees. And again, this is Sayer sort of laying out, you know, all the details that 
maybe don't make meaningful sense right now, but will. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a desk with a typewriter with a pile of neatly typed sheets embellished with footnotes and, quote, a good many passages of what looked to Mr. Egg like Greek, though it might, of course, have been Russian or Arabic or any other language with a queer alphabet, which I'm like, ooh, I think he'd be able to tell the difference, but oh, well. (laughs) And then the professor comes in. He you know, has a very, very long beard, uh, very long hair, very dressed as that absent-minded professor, right? Like gray trousers, which had forgotten the last time they'd ever seen a trousers press and a pair of carpet slippers over which gray woolen socks wreathed themselves in folds, uh, which is just <laughs> such a delightful I love that. description. Yeah. Monty notices that he has ex- an extremely ill-fitting set of dentures not my favorite thing that Sayers does, but she renders the whistling noise, uh, the hish and click, like as he's speaking. Yeah, and they have a very lovely discussion of the wine list before Monty sort of asks, like, oh, are you thinking of settling permanently in this part of the country? The professor gets a little bit, uh, okay, you know, like time for you to go <laughs> once Monty starts to pry a bit. And then the professor mentions that he's finishing a book with the the history of the early Christian church hish click <laughs> makes this comment like, oh, but that means nothing to you, I take it. Hey, said the professor. Monty says, no, like the Swan of Avon, if I may put it that way, of small Latin and less Greek, and that's the only resemblance between me and him, I'm afraid. Which sort of points to, once again, something we'll talk about with Gotti Knight. Latin learning was actually very, very widely available in Britain kind of at this time, especially in sort of the elementary levels. But yeah, Greek would have been much less common. So then Monty, you know, he he starts pulling the thread. And once again, as readers, we're not quite sure what thread he's pulling yet. But he starts sort of writing to different people who'd be in the know. Have you ever heard of this Professor Pinder? Gets referred to to a different professor who, you know, says like, this guy doesn't seem to hold any English or Scotch professorship. And I love he says, of course, it might be a foreign or American. Did he speak with any accent, Egg? No? Well, that proves nothing, of course. Anybody can get a professorship from those odd American universities. <laughs> <laughs> a little jab. Jab at the uh, Americans with our, our shoddy standards. Uh, mm. So then Mr. Griffiths, who was the first person that Monty was asking about, if you've heard of this person, writes to him later and says, I corresponded with the professor and, you know, managed to get a copy of the typescript he's working on. It's it's a first class manuscript, but he's also being really evasive. He doesn't say where he got his professorship. He's he's being a little dodgy, but the book is really, really good. So, you know, I'm going to try to try to get it for this publisher. Then Monty gets another letter that says like, Professor Pinder absolutely refuses to to see me or to discuss his book. Dr. Abcock, whom we consulted about if he knows this guy is also getting excited about this manuscript i think i think what we should do is get hold of another professor <laughs> just, just academia <laughs> consult more professors <laughs> like dr wilverton is going to know everything and everybody but like yeah for sure the person who wrote this book is a is a bona fide scholar so so then finally they hear from wilverton and wilverton says like the book is absolutely the work of a first-rate scholar. I know the scholar. You know, I recognize the manuscript because I read part of it at one point. And it was written by a young man called Roger Dunn, D-O-N-N-E, like John Dunn, which put a pin in that. Dunn turned to drink, ended his life in a very impoverished way. And so Wilverton says his guess is that when all of Dunn's things were sold after his death, somebody bought up the manuscript. 
Mm-hmm. So then at that point, they're all like, what is going on? <laughs> and Monty remembers the missing financier. And all of the, the threads sort of coalesce for him. And he says like, yeah, this is someone who clearly was trying to go through a lot of trouble to be seen mm-hmm. in his life. Like, you know, he goes all the way back to talking about Mr. Hopgood and saying like, yeah, if usually, usually customers, like if they don't like soft drinks, they wouldn't even have the salesperson be shown in. So that was sort of the first thing that Monty noticed was this professor was kind of going out of his way to be seen in his library full of books. Mm. But unlike most academics, seems to not want to engage <laughs> with the academic community. And so basically at the end of it all, Monty's like, you know, you should call the police because this man is the missing financier who took a bunch of assets from Mammoth Industries. He must have just bought up somebody's library and is like trying to pass himself off as a professor. His housekeeper is actually his wife. And yeah, and and the reasons that Monty knows this isn't because he himself was like trying to engage the fake Professor Pinder in like a long scholarly conversation. He noticed things like, why would a man with false teeth order steak? (laughs) He noticed that all the books were sort of crammed really, really tightly into the shelves, Mm -hmm. which he was like, you know, no person who needs to consult books very often would do that because it would just like damage the spines to take them in and out. Yeah. Um, He was like, there was no organization to the library, which anybody who knows a reader is like, they're just meticulous systems that we do things with, right? Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't put the 15th century pamphlets next to the the, the 12th century manuscripts or whatever. So yeah, those are all, those are kind of like all the things that, that Monty notices. And so he says like, you know, Greek Mm -hmm. or no Greek, I couldn't believe that gentleman ever read any of his books. I expect he just bought up someone's library, which is often done by rich gentlemen who get their libraries done by furnishing firms, which is also, I think, going back to the class thing, and then I'll stop talking, um, <laughs> an interesting nod to like the way that I guess like the nouveau riche might have this class anxiety around having the right things. But of course, the right things are never the things that you can just outright buy, right? Like Mm -hmm. they have to have the aura of being very old and being priceless in many ways and coming down to you through your family versus just a consumable object, I suppose. So yeah, that is that is the story. Where do we want to dive back in? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you know, when you lay it out like that, it's kind of interesting because it doesn't so much have a plot no, as it is an unusual circumstance. And then you just kind of get to see Monty poking at it a little bit and then he tugs the right thread and everything unravels, right? The only reason they're able to prove anything is because in the course of his friend who works for a publisher making inquiries about the book and getting to see the manuscript and then making inquiries of a couple of different professors to, you know, kind of get some background and be like, you know, is this guy legitimate because we want to buy this book? Yeah, basically peer review. (laughs) Yeah. And they just happen to hit on the one professor who can be like, I have seen this stuff before. And I know it was written by this guy who was my pupil who passed away in poverty and his stuff must have been sold. I mean, that's not a plot, but like the story is still so interesting and enjoyable to read. Partly because Monty is just a pleasant character. Like, that's the word that comes to mind. It's just like, he's just pleasant to read about. And it's also just interesting seeing all the little pieces click into place. And and who needs plot? (laughs) Really? Who needs plot when when you can talk about themes? (laughs) 
Yeah. It's so neat. You know, like you said puzzle box earlier. Mm -hmm. And it really is. It's just like one of those things which is like all the things just like kind of shift around and then slot into place and it's all neat and tidy. And I don't know, like I kind of I found this story rewarding to read. Like my brain enjoyed this. My brain found it refreshing. Ah, yes, it all fits together. Look how neat and clean it is. <laughs> I will take that dopamine hit. Thank you. Yes. Animal Crossing and Sayers, the only things giving us dopamine these days. <laughs> <laughs> I also kind of love that there's and like tell me if this is I'm making too tortured of a leap here, as is my want. But I, I feel like it's a story that really it really plays on the question of taste right taste as a as a marker of class as something that's like taught to you by your class as something that class anxiety revolves around as something that can be mimicked but not necessarily naturalized like the the false professor can buy this manuscript and replicate it on typewriter but he's always going to be found out because he can't actually have the conversation about greek and latin mm-hmm. and the early church fathers and so forth and yet you know he's able to have a very long and pleasant conversation with monty about his wine list so it's sort of like the the questions of like, what are the tastes of the intellectual class? What are the literal tastes of like a, a middle class that's newly wealthy, that's like maybe aspiring to, to get into a certain kind of class position? All of this, of course, taking place beneath this financier committing fraud and then like trying to pass himself off, you know, and our detective is a salesman who, who literally peddles a kind of taste. Mm-hmm. Right, like a, a, a the taste of wine, the taste of fine spirits. Like when when Monty hears like, oh yeah, he gets a steak chops and up. He's like, okay, you know, he starts going through his catalog about like what pairs well with steak. So it's like, <laughs> this is where like you know, if I were delivering a paper on this, I'd be like, here are all the interesting questions that this raises, <laughs> and then be like, and <laughs> talk is over. <laughs> Go talk about you know, and answers <laughs> among yourselves. Yeah. But like. I just think it's really interesting to me that a kind of literal taste is wrapped up in questions of class and what kinds of knowledge belong to which classes and how people can be found out as trying to pass themselves off in a class that they are not based off of having the wrong taste for that class, right? And so mm-hmm. I guess, again, not to accuse Sayers of being a snob, but I, th- I think once again, it's it's just like, she's really invested in these questions. <laughs> in some ways, like maybe a little bit invested in also policing the boundaries there and like, you know, not letting people get away with it. And I feel like I'm stretching for a connection to the the fact that the young gentleman who unfortunately took to drink and wasn't able to fulfill his destiny as being a brilliant scholar is Roger Dunn. I mean, like we know Peter loves John Dunn. Dunn himself was sort of a, I mean, he's a, he's a really interesting figure for the modernists because he's, you know, obviously was like well known when he was writing poetry. And then like Dunn really fell out of popularity for a couple centuries. The popular reception history of Dunn is like, oh, it, it wasn't until T.S. Eliot got really, really interested in John Dunn and sort of like revitalized Dunn's reputation that he was seen as like a very important poet in the canon. So I, I feel like there's something there too about Peter and this guy Roger Dunn as as like being connoisseurs of taste because they too are are really interested in John Dunn or like connected with John Dunn in a way that, <laughs> you know, not everybody, not every scholar would have like recognized 
so to speak, Dunn's genius or something. Mm. So there's there's also something about like being on the the forefront of a certain kind of, you know, academic reading or intellectual reading or or having a, a sort of marginalized or marginal opinion that is supposed to show like what good taste Peter has, at least. Mm-hmm. Nah. Anyway, yeah. Great, great to do a yeah. podcast where I just word vomit all of those thoughts <laughs> and can't go back and, and fix the argument. But I feel like that's just all swirling around in this goblet. <laughs> Well, I think that that makes sense because we get the impression that Sayers was concerned with these things and they they just bleed through. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't know, like I find that whole question very interesting. I've said before that like I'm interested in the way that the the questions that people are asking, you know, consciously or subconsciously when they do creative work and the way those questions kind of bleed into whatever they're doing. and. Do I think that Sayers was sitting down to examine the class system and <laughs> no, not really. Like I think in Gaudy Night and in Busman's Honeymoon, she made some conscious decisions about dealing with those questions. May or may not have come to any actual conclusions. We'll I will have stuff to say about that when we get there someday in ten years. But yeah, like I feel like in this story. there's not a deliberate attempt to make any kind of commentary it's just that it shows up because you know you you reckon with the world that's around you yeah right yeah and Sayers was living in a world that was in I mean you think of the 30s and it's just this kind of weird time you know like you've had this devastating war women are in a, a strange new position in society like the values in society have have shifted a little bit and like america's doing what like whatever is going on in america <laughs> we're having an interesting time just giving professorships out willy-nilly <laughs> <laughs> just, just who knows <laughs> Obviously, class was still important and class markers are still important, but people who were used to a certain amount of class privilege had to, you know, feel a little unbalanced mm-hmm. because you're just like, oh, wait, my my position and the my the course of my life has suddenly been upended. Kind of like when Monty is introduced to the quote unquote housekeeper, mm-hmm. the, who in actuality is the financier's wife. You know, but he assess he looks at her mannerisms and he assesses her immediately as a pre-war gentlewoman in a post-war job. Like when you see the people around you and the the ups and downs of where people go in society don't match up with what you anticipated. Yeah. There's a lot of I can I can imagine there being whether Sayers consciously thought about it in this way or not, but under like class anxiety about you know protecting what you see as what you deserved like oh but but i'm this i'm such and such a a class like i'm middle class i deserve i deserve higher education or i like i deserve a a job with benefits i work so hard to get here by by being born into an educated family (laughs) i think this will also be a really interesting conversation as we get into have his carcass again and certainly when we go to gaudy Mm -hmm. night because We've both talked about how we we don't necessarily like to read Harriet as like the Dorothy Sayers avatar in the books. Right. Um, Or at least like to to stop there would feel insufficient. 
Mm-hmm. But I think like something that I've grown sort of increasingly uncomfortable with in my rereadings of the Harriet books as I've gotten older, be- because that character was like so important to me when I was a teenager and-, and still is very, very important to me. But I think something I notice more and more is this sort of attitude that gets placed in Harriet or, or this attitude that Harriet holds that feels very like, you know, like I'm not like the other girls. Yeah, we'll kind of like we'll see that a lot in have his carcass as she's watching and sort of like judging the goings on at the hotel. And certainly in gaudy night, like it's it's just a perpetual. Yeah, her attempt to align with the the dons at Oxford versus like all the women in her graduating class who she feels like squandered their potential. And And there's I mean, there's so much about like, potential and career and things that were promised to women of a certain education and the things that were actually given them. So I don't, I mean, I don't want to like flatten that distinction too much. Um, again, yeah. this will be, we will, we will talk about this at length eventually. <laughs> you has so much to say. Yeah. But I do think that there are a lot of things that betray a certain kind of class anxiety in these books and these stories and whether Sayers was working through anxieties that she herself had or reflecting, you know, attitudes that she saw in society at large or both. It's something that I think we'll, we'll want to pull apart more. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's a lot of condemnation in Sayers' body of work of people trying to pass themselves off as something that they're not, especially when it comes to class, especially when it comes to education. And that that disapproval resides more in Harriet than in Peter is very interesting. I mean, I think part of it is that like, you can become an impoverished lord, but you're always going to be a lord, right? Yeah. It's like they, they exist in a realm that's like very different from, oh, the railway baron who made a lot of money and was like granted a knighthood, you know, might buy that country manor and like might buy a bunch of nice books to put in his library. And then, oh, no, nobody's going to know his, uh, his true, you know, his, his, uh, his dirty mm. origins or something. Yeah. Anyway, I look forward to babbling about all of that <laughs> more <laughs> in the future. Yeah. There's, there's threads, and we're going to tug on the threads because we can't help it. We can't help it. Yeah. Um, and speaking of tugging on the threads, we do intend to return to Have His Carcass, our long abandoned book. Next, we, we're not going <laughs> to do any more short stories. <laughs> yes, this was basically us getting back in the saddle and... Palette cleanser for us, too. Yeah, a palette cleanser for us. And yeah, just getting getting back into the swing of things. So that when we do, like when we dive back into Have His Carcass, we are... we are not gonna do uh this (laughs) i mean like we went so many directions and i enjoyed it all but it did wander uh, around a little bit it was very wandery (laughs) which okay for a short story but if yeah if we're gonna try to get through the many chapters of have his carcass we will need to be slightly more focused (laughs) yes Yes. And we will be. We will be. Yes. But, you know, it's kind of like we were talking about, like, the interest in the things that Sayers is worried about bleeding into her work. The stuff that we're worried about in current events bleeds into the podcast. And that's fine. Very true. Yeah. I don't I don't think it makes any sense to pretend that you don't experience things through the lens of your current experience. You you know? Yeah. I mean... 
we certainly aren't going to pretend that. <laughs> We're not going to pretend that. I don't see any point in pretending that. And I think, I don't know, like as readers, I think it's interesting the way you read a book at different points in your life and it feels different or it the different things stand out to you or the same book can play a different role in your life over and over again. 100%. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the things I like about it. It's one of the reasons I am a chronic rereader. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was like, I didn't, I was just like, I didn't really have a closing thought for that. I just, it's okay. Just, just go reread the entire <laughs> Queen's Thief series and read Return yes. of the Thief so that we can talk about it. <laughs> yes. We like I'll read it and we'll just we'll just have to schedule a call. Yeah. Just just for that, just to talk about that. So yes, thank you, patient listeners who've stuck <laughs> with us. So patient. So patient through our completely unannounced, unplanned hiatus, plus these short story episodes, which we hope were a delightful surprise, but maybe were a frustrating <laughs> um detour from Wilvercombe and our beloved Peter and Harriet. But yes, we, we will we will return to the Sandy Shores soon. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy, W-I-M-S-E-Y. And you can find transcripts and show notes of our episodes on our website at asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd love for you to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. And we also hope that you'll tell all your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. Join us next time for more Talking Piffle. Mm-hmm.